Good morning, everyone. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. Just an opportunity to learn the scriptures in a more age-appropriate setting. Um, before I start the sermon, I wanted to share with you what we did this week out at Antelope Valley College. It was uh, Every time we do it, it's different. Um, we run into different people, have different conversations. Um, Tuesday was really busy. We handed out a lot of water. It was pretty warm. Um, we spoke with some folks, prayed with a few. But Wednesday was just a really intense day of prayer. We prayed with probably maybe 10 or 12 people, I think. And these weren't just, oh, I need help with my finals. There were some like that. But there were some really weighty problems that people brought to us and asked us to pray with them. Um, one woman, she's mother, a single mother of three, living in a house with a schizophrenic mother, an undiagnosed schizophrenic sister, and they are just causing havoc because they keep turning stuff off and canceling things and locking her out and leaving the doors open. And she's going to school, raising her three kids, and she's the only breadwinner in that whole household. And she asked for prayer. Um, another woman came to us and she said that she wanted prayer for her daughter because her daughter had been molested from the age of uh, four to 12. And then when she was in high school, she was kidnapped and put out on the street by a sex trafficker. Now she's a single mom. Her husband, I forget what his deal was. I think he was in dr on drugs and in jail. And now she's living with her brother. And then this woman says, oh, and for me, um, a man tried to rape me at work a number of years ago, and I got fired. And so I was in a depression for a number of uh, months. And finally, one day, I just stood up and said, it's time to go to school. And so she just picked herself up and went back. And these are the kind of weights that people were bringing to us and asking for prayer about these things. I mean, it wasn't just, I need help with my finals. The first lady that prayed, I prayed with on um, Wednesday said that she wanted prayer because she's got finals coming up. And I thought, oh, it's one of those. And she said, and my son has a court date and I can't be there. He's on, he's on, on trial today and I can't be there for his, his sentencing because I had to take these finals. So she's got the burden of worrying about her son while she's also trying to finish this, these courses so that she can get a job. Um, it was just amazing. And so one of the things that, you know, when we do these outreaches, we sometimes think, well, then they're all going to come to our church, right? It's not about our church. It's about Christ's church. And we would be delighted if they came to our church. But most important, we want them to come to Christ. We want them to know who Jesus is. And so when we go and we pray, we may not see the next step of what God does in their life, but we have asked the, the benevolent, loving, sovereign of the entire universe to intercede on behalf of these people. We've asked him to, in, to invade their lives and to, to deal with some of these things. So it's not a waste. Um, it was just a wonderful time. So I want to thank everybody who helped set up, people who helped uh, by providing water, people who prayed while we were praying. Um, it is just a great thing to go out and be a blessing to our, our, um, our community like that. Um, so thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Also, one of the things I said at, at the end of that day was, this has got to affect my preaching. Because you've got to think about people who do not live like us. Most of us are fairly comfortable. We're fairly secure. And then to think about some of these people and ask the question, well, how does this passage speak to this woman who is you know, worried about her daughter, who's had this horrible background. How does the gospel speak to a, a transsexual man that I spoke to who can't get home, home, um, homeless shelter because he identifies as a man, though physically as a woman, and, and so the shelters won't take him. And whether you agree or disagree with his transsexuality, he's got to live somewhere. <laughs> he's got to go someplace. 
And now he's stuck out on the street because of this, this issue in his life. And so how does the gospel speak to somebody in that position? How, how do you tell somebody that's like that, that, that God still cares for them and still loves them and wants them to come to himself? So um, it just was a, a really great week out at the college. And, and um, I, I'd want to thank you all for supporting us. Uh, either uh, by donating or helping move or being there or praying for us or, or any of that. That was just a, a wonderful experience. And uh, I ask you if you get a chance next year, join us. See if you can come out and, and be with us as we hand out water and pray for people who are in really need of prayer. So with that in mind, let, let's go to prayer now. I pray. um, Lord, we are, um, we're thankful that uh, you have come to us, Lord Jesus, that uh, as Ramey read at the beginning, you were with God in the beginning, and yet you came to be with your people. You came to be with your own, and your own rejected you. Uh, but to all those who are um, called by you, uh, you've given them the gift to be called sons of God. And so thank you that you, you do that. You continue to do that. that. That didn't happen in the first century, and it's over. That you continue to call people to yourself. And Lord, would you call more people to yourself? Uh, Lord, Bring many more into your kingdom, we pray. And Father, I want to pray specifically for every single person we prayed for at the college, whether it was something as simple as I need help with my finals or as dramatic as I can't find a place to live. Um, Lord, would you use our prayers as that first point of entry into that person's life? Would you draw them to yourself and begin to show them through the answered prayers of your saints that, Lord, you are living, that you're active, that you care? and that you will draw people to yourself. And so have mercy on them, we pray. Meet them in their special needs and remind them, Lord, that they have been prayed for and that it's you who is working in their life and not their own, their own efforts. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd be with us now as we turn to, uh, to Acts chapter 3. Uh, Lord, Holy Spirit, what is it that you want to say to us? What do we need to hear this morning? Lord, would you say that? Would you speak clearly through your word to us and help us to see and to believe? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So you remember last week, the end of uh, Pentecost, it was the, the final portion of the day of Pentecost. Um, Luke kind of summed up everything that had happened. There were 3,000 people had come to become believers that day. And then at the end, Luke kind of sums it up and he says that, that there was awe among people because signs and wonders were being done by the apostles. Um, he said that the, they sold what they had and they gave to anyone in need. They just shared everything that they had. They were going to the temple daily to worship and that they were finding favor with people. So that was kind of his summary statement. Well, what happens next in chapter three is I think he kind of backs us up and says, let me give you an example of what that looked like. Let me show you what, what I mean by this, because there's so many of the things that he just listed that are happening in this very text. Where are they going? They're walking into the temple. He says signs and wonders were done by the apostles, such as such as a man who was born lame now stands up and walks. They, they would go there to preach, and people would look at them and be amazed at what God was doing through them, and they were sharing the gospel. And so that's kind of, he, he kind of backs us into that again, and he unpacks us. Here's an example of what that looks like. And so this morning, what we're going to see is it's kind of like the, the sermon at Pentecost, too, is there was a miracle and some people misunderstood it. So there's a miracle. There's an explanation of the miracle. And in the end, there's this call to repentance. It's a similar outline to that sermon, but there's, there's things done differently in this one. Uh, for example, in the Pentecost sermon, do you remember 
Luke, I mean, uh, uh, Peter quoted big chunks of scripture. He, he read from Joel. He read from Psalms. He quoted big pieces of scripture. He refers to scripture here, but it's not quite as big as what he did then. So it's a little bit different, but it's kind of the same thing. So what happens is there's a miracle. Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. That was about three o'clock in the afternoon. They're heading up to pray. And there's this well-known, everybody knew this person. He, he had been laying at the temple begging alms probably most of his life because he was born lame. And the way uh, Luke describes his healing is that his feet and ankles became strong and so he's able to stand up. So he's probably born with, with some sort of muscular problem that his, his feet couldn't carry him. And so he couldn't work. He couldn't earn a living for himself. And so what he would do is he would go to a place where religious people were going to worship and he would ask for uh, a giving, an offering. Would you help me? So as people are walking into the temple, they're going in to worship God, and it would pain their conscience to see this poor man sitting there. And so they would give alms. Um, I was listening to a, a podcast this week with uh, a guy that I listen to a lot. He's a uh, practicing Jew, and he was talking about giving to the poor, that he does that as a matter of religious principle. He just, you know, whenever he walks around, he keeps changing his pockets and he gives people money because that's what the Torah tells him he should do. And so you could see this happening as people are going into the temple. They're feeling very religious. They're going to worship God. And a poor man's there. I should do something for him. Torah tells me I should do something for this man. And so they do. Um, that was how he would stay alive. Because in those days, if you couldn't earn a living, it wasn't like you had Social Security or, um, or disability or anything. The Romans didn't provide those kind of things. He had to count on your countrymen to do that. And that's what he was doing. So somebody, some of his friends, took him and set him at the gate. And so as he's coming in, he's watching Peter and John. He's, maybe they'll give me something. And he holds out his cup. I picture him with a tin cup. I don't know why. Um, and he, he wants to receive psalms, or alms. Um, and Peter notices him. It says that Peter directed his gaze at him. The idea is he didn't just like walk by and, and ignore him. He fixed his eyes on him. And he says, look at us. One of the things that I've heard homeless people say is that they feel invisible. They're asking for help, and they just feel invisible to most people. They'll say something, they'll ask, and people just turn, a, a, turn their cheek and walk away. I have done this myself. Instead of looking at them and politely saying, no, I don't have anything, or I'm sorry, no, just act like you didn't see them. And so maybe this is what this man feels like, is he has never been really noticed before. People might just kind of chuck money as they walk past. But Peter makes it personal. As a matter of fact, as we go through this section, this entire section is extremely personal. Peter makes it personal. So he fixes his eyes on him. He says, look at us. And so the man looks at him expecting to receive some coins. Maybe he'll throw me a couple of coins. But Peter tells him, I have no silver or gold, but what I do, give, what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So you remember how it ended as they said, if anybody had need, people were selling their possessions and distributing it freely among the church. And so Peter gets here and he looks at him. And he says, I don't have silver or gold. So wouldn't you say Peter had a need? Apparently not. He seemed to be doing okay. He didn't have cash with him necessarily, but he had friends and family that he could be with, a church that would support him. And so when he looks at this man, he says, I, I don't have what you're looking for. I don't have the cash that you need, but what I do have, I will share. And the, what he had to share with him was not just physical healing. What he had to share with him was the person of Jesus Christ. 
Because other places in the Bible talk about two, napkins were taken from Paul and, and taken through the city, and, and people would touch the napkins and be healed. People would see Peter walk past, and his shadow would fall on him, and they'd be healed. So the healing didn't have to be like this. He looks the man in the face and says, I'm offering to you Jesus Christ. That's what I'm offering to you. Now, the, the miracle is that the man is able to walk, but not just because his ankles were strengthened. The miracle is here is a man who never in his life has ever walked. And Peter looks at him and says, be healed in the name of Jesus. And the man doesn't kind of stand up and look like a two-year-old trying to walk and fall over. The man jumps up and he goes into the temple leaping and, and laughing and extolling God and praising God. He is not only miraculously healed in his ankles so that they're strong enough to carry him, he's miraculously given the mental hardware, the mental software he needs to operate a body that he's never operated like that before so that he can go and walk. This is no minor miracle. This isn't just, you know, throw your, your, your uh, crutches away. This is someone who has not been able, who has never done this entire life, stands up and jumps and follows them. It's dramatic. It's huge. And it's also not hidden in a corner, is it? He didn't say, look, come over here with me, and we'll, we'll go over in this, this corner of the portico. He does it so that everybody can see. Everybody is aware of what's gone on. And so the man leaps up. His feet and ankles are made strong. Leaping, he stood, and he began to walk, and he entered the temple with them. And the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who begged there all the time, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Isn't that what Luke told us was happening? In the last chapter, awe was coming upon everyone because the apostles were doing these signs and wonders. Awe just fell on a bunch of people because one of the apostles did signs and wonders. So yeah, that's what's going on. Now think about that being born blind. In John chapter 9, there's a man who's born blind, and Jesus heals him. And that was a huge miracle because nobody's ever healed anybody born with that deformity. Nobody's ever healed anybody who's been always like that. So it's the same thing here. It's the man born blind in John chapter 9 lacked the ability to see. It wasn't like he got his eyes jabbed out or something or got you know something in his eyes where he couldn't see. He lacked the ability and now he has ability. It's the same thing here. He, he heals this man in this miraculous way and then they go into the temple. Um, there's an apocryphal story. I don't know if this is true. There's a couple of different versions of the same story, but I'm picking up this one that I kind of like. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas was in Rome, and he was walking the streets with a cardinal. So Thomas Aquinas and a cardinal are walking down the street, and the cardinal noticed a beggar, and he reached into his pocket, and he pulled out a silver coin and gave it to him. Then he turned to Aquinas and said to the great doctor of the church and said, Well, Thomas... Fortunately, we can no longer say as Peter did, silver and gold have I none. Now the church is wealthy and we can distribute like that. Thomas replied, yes, that is true, but neither can we say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. There's a danger with too much wealth is we wind up taking half of the equation. We say, now we can't say, you know, we don't have enough money, so here's some money. But at the same time, the church has become impotent, according to that story, because neither can they perform these miracles. They can't offer this person that kind of help. And so it's kind of troubling when you think that this is how we could approach things, is we could just shower money and then walk away and pretend like that took care of the problem. 
That's not the complete biblical picture. James 1, he puts it pretty straightforward in, in James 1, verse 27. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. So if you want your religion, if you want your religious practices to be pure and undefiled before God the Father, and who doesn't, that would be a good thing. Visit orphans and widows in their infliction and keep yourself unstained from the world. There's two things there, isn't there? There's keep yourself unstained from the world. Don't fall into worldly practices. Don't get in line with how the world approaches things. But it's not just a mental exercise. Visit orphans and widows. And in James' day, those were the most vulnerable. They had no way of making an income. Children were not seen as the, the precious little angels that we see them as now. They were a liability until they were old enough to actually pull their weight. So an orphan, it wasn't like people loved orphans and took orphans in. They're going to just consume for the next 10, 15 years until I can get them to the point where they can start producing. Widows were not allowed to inherit. They weren't allowed to own property. So when their husband died, they were on their own. Unless they could find somebody to take them in and care for them, they were on their own. This is religion that's pure and undefiled. Is to not just look and say, oh, I'm sorry, that's, that's like that, here's a couple of dollars, and then go away. But is to look after those who are weak and vulnerable, those who are in need. That's the kind of religion that God wants uh, to see. That's what kind of religion that would be pure before him. And that's what James and Peter do, is we can't give you money at this point. But since I'm an apostle and I have the, the ability to perform signs and wonders, I will give to you what I can, which is healing. I, I've now cured your problem. You can now go out and earn a living. You can do something to stand on your own. You can provide for yourself now. Um, now, the Aquinas story was kind of interesting, but um, anybody here be able to go up to somebody and say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, ride up, rise up and walk? Um, I, I have not personally been given that authority to do that. I don't know of anybody that has. That was the personal authority of the apostles. But it happens. It can happen. And just like the, the Pentecost sermon, this huge miracle happens to get people's attention. The same thing happened here. This huge miracle happened to get people's attention. Now, probably have told the story again. I'm going to tell it again and again and again. That's what preachers do, is they tell the same stories over and over again. But when I see this man in my brain, I see a man that we met in Myanmar. That, that's who I see every time I, I read this story. Um, Jen and I had gone to, uh, we were taken out to some remote part outside of the, the capital city and dropped off and two other team members went to another location. And when they got there, the situation that they thought they were going to didn't get set up. The church didn't show up. And uh, the, the, one of the guys was the team leader for the whole trip and, and he's not the kind of guy to take no for an answer. So he says, well, what we'll do is we'll pray. So send the word out into the streets. Anybody needs prayer can come on in and we'll pray for him. His teammate was a housewife from Memphis. And her prayer life was, oh, Johnny's got the sniffles, Lord, heal him. And by the way, here's some Dimetab. You know, not really faithless, but not expecting, you know, he's not rise up and be healed kind of thing. She just, you know, in the kind of typical American way, yeah, God will heal him, you know, one way or the other. So they, they're praying for people, and suddenly they bring a man in on a mat. They carry him in, and they set him in the chair, and so... The team leader puts his hand on his shoulder and kind of scoops up the man's limp hand in, in his. And the housewife puts her hands on the shoulders and they begin to pray for him. 
with the same expectancy that we pray for our kids when they get colds, you know? In some general nebulous sense, Lord, do something. Well, as they're praying, Dan, the team leader, said he could feel this man begin to squeeze his hand. Went from just a limp hand laying there to squeezing. And the, the housewife said she could, as she had her hand on his shoulder, she could feel him sitting up. And when they say to amen, this man leapt out of the chair. And, and if I remember this description right, he was raising his legs, his knees almost up to his nose, going, I am so light. It's so light. And he was praising God. So why did God do that? Because God had a purpose in Myanmar with our team being there. He wanted the gospel to be heard. He wanted people to hear this. And so the next day when they went back, there were a lot of people coming for prayer. There was a lot of stuff going on. Um, God uses these miracles sometimes, not every time, but he uses these miracles sometimes in order to draw people's attention, not to the healing ministry, not to the individual doing it, but to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That punctuated that moment for people. And at the end of the week, when we did our celebration, we gathered everybody together, that gentleman was standing in the middle of us praising God because God had healed him that way. That's just, to me, an amazing story. And that's what I picture happening here because he, he kind of acted like this guy. He was leaping and, and praising God. It was a similar kind of thing. And so the gospel goes out. Sometimes God brings these, these big moments to draw a crowd, to get people's attention. And so that was the miracle. Now, with last week, there was a, or last, uh, last couple weeks ago, the, the sermon at Pentecost, there was a misunderstanding by the crowd. You remember some people said, well, what's going on? And some other people went, well, they're drunk. Um, this time we don't get that. What we get is Peter just corrects them before they start supposing anything wrong. So here's his explanation. While he clung to Peter and John, I, I picture the guy standing in the middle of them with his arms around their shoulders going, yeah, these guys healed me. Isn't that awesome? While he's clinging to them and walking into the temple, the people ran around to the protocol of, uh, called Solomon's. And when Peter saw he addressed the people. He sees the crowd assemble and he goes, I know what you're thinking. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we made him walk. Don't, don't look at us, is what he's saying. It's not me. It's not because I'm so sacred or I'm so holy or I'm so pure that this man is walking. Don't even go there. Before they even ask the question, Peter cuts them off and redirects them. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. It's the same thing, isn't it? This Jesus whom you crucified. Now he, he looks at them and he says, don't think this is us. This is our God, the covenant God of our people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who formed us into a nation through these people. This God, the God of our fathers, he did this. How and why did he do it? He did it in order to glorify his son, Jesus Christ, his servant, Jesus Christ. That's why he healed this man. Why did that healing come? One purpose, to glorify Jesus' name. So as you gather together and you look, don't look at us like we're something special. We want you to know who did this. Jesus did. And who did that through Jesus? God did that through Jesus. The God of our fathers did that through Jesus. So don't miss that point. It wasn't because we're so special. That's the good news. Now the bad news. Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. 
This Jesus, who our covenant God ordained and appointed to do these things, this Jesus, you denied him. You betrayed him. You handed him over. Now, the word you there is second person plural. You, all of you. And I think Peter is including in, him, in that you, all of you, he's including himself. What did Peter do, oh, about 40-something days ago? I swear I never met the man. I have no idea who you're talking about. He swore and he cussed and he said, I never met the man. Didn't he just deny the righteous and holy one? He's not excluding himself here. He's not excluding anyone. He's saying, you all did this. All of you did this to the one who could heal this man who was born that way. So what he said was, he said that, that you, um, you denied him in the presence of Pilate who had decided to release him. So one of the questions that comes up from this kind of discussion is the Jews denied and handed over Jesus. So some people look at that and go, see, the Jews killed Jesus. The Jews didn't land a hand on Jesus. They handed him over to Pilate. And do you remember what Pilate said in John 19? Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So they, they take Jesus, the Jews take Jesus, trump up charges and hand him over to Pilate and say, Kill him. Pilate comes out and says, I find no guilt in him. But I'll kill him anyway. Does anybody get off in this scenario? Does anybody get a, a free pass in this? That's why when I said it's you all, all of you, it means everybody. There's nobody innocent in the death of Jesus Christ. They, they have all been guilty of this. They have all done this. And, and the you all includes us as well. Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus have to go to a cross and suffer? Because the sins of all were laid on him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was your sin and my sin that put Jesus on a cross. Though we may not have been standing in the, in the crowd yelling, crucify him, it was because of our sin that he did that. We have all denied and rejected the righteous and holy one. There's a hymn that says, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice, voice call out among the scoffers. In some way, in some fashion, we were there because our, our sin, our guilt was there. It was a burden on him. You killed the author of life, is what he said. You killed the author of life. The word author is arche, source, origination, foundation, ruler, that kind of thing. Jesus is the arche of life, the source, the, the originator of life. Angels were created by Jesus. He's the source of life. Angels were living. If you want to prove angels were living, what happens to him in the end? They suffer eternal death. You don't suffer eternal death if you're not living. Rocks don't suffer eternal death. The angels are living. God created them. Jesus Christ created the angels. He created the animals. When God said, let there be, and there was, it was because Jesus created them. He's the author, the source, the foundation of life. He created human beings. He spoke them into existence. He gave them life. He is the author of life. This is the Jesus Christ, by the way, whom you rejected, 
whom you denied and whom you turned over to Pilate. This is the Jesus Christ I'm talking about, just to be clear. So I, I appreciate that Ramey read from uh, John chapter 1 this morning. I, I was standing out in the hallway listening. I'm smiling going, we didn't even meet this week and we're already on the same page. Verse 3 says it well. All things were created through him and apart from him was nothing created that was created. So Jesus created it all. He is the source of life. He is the one eternally existing who creates everything. If he is part of creation, then the first thing he created was himself because everything is created through him. He couldn't have created himself because he wouldn't have existed before he created himself. So if everything was created through him, then he must be eternally existing. So we go back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God from the very beginning. This, the Word did this. This is the Jesus Christ whom we're talking about. It's easy to miss that to begin to see the suffering servant, to see this man in sandals with a beard and robes walking around doing things and preaching and forget that's his human nature. His divinity has existed always. His divinity is the source of all life. His divinity is the one that holds the universe together by the exertion of his will. His humanity has dirty sandals and walks around with, with uh, 12 apostles who don't understand. And that human is the one that you rejected. That human is the one that you said we don't want. He is the author, the source, the foundation of life. On our Tenebrae service, our Good Friday service, I read a poem by uh, Miss Anne Steele. She was an 18th century Baptist in England, and she wrote hymns. She, write, she would write wonderful poems. The way that poem, it's called Redeeming Love, ends is, and then, oh, what loads of wrath unknown the glorious sufferer felt. For crimes unnumbered to atone, to expiate mortal guilt. The Father's blissful smile withdrawn in that tremendous hour. Yet still the God sustained the man with his almighty power. Tis finished now aloud, he cries. No more the law requires. And now, amazing sacrifice, the Lord of life expires. You killed the author of life. The one who gives you existence, you murdered him. The weight of that just, you'll spend the rest of eternity unpacking how the author of life could be killed. How could we do that? How could we turn on the author of life? But it doesn't end there. It doesn't stay there. He then explains who this author of life is. He's the one whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. So it's not like we won. We killed him, he's dead, it's over. No, we have nothing to fear. He's, he's rotting in a tomb right now, everything's good. No, Peter says, no, there's more to this than that. Hold on for a second. God raised him from the dead. And then the next question was, well, how do you know? We are witnesses to that. We have seen him. Thomas put his fingers in his hands and probed his side. We ate with him. We dwelt with him. He talked with us. He taught us. This Jesus is raised from the dead. Now, remember, I said that this was the primary apologetic of the book of Acts. It's Jesus is raised from the dead, and we ourselves have seen him. It didn't happen in private. Some people are, are unhappy at the fact that Jesus didn't appear on CNN after his resurrection, that he didn't come and stand in the middle of the temple and go, Hi, I'm back. But neither did it happen in private. These men saw it, and now they're standing in that very temple going, we saw it, and he's really alive. 
So this Jesus whom you killed is now back. Peter and John are witnesses. If you don't believe them, he could tell them, right, standing there in the temple, if you don't believe him, go look where we buried him. There's nobody there. He's gone. The author of life raised himself. John 10, 18 says, I have the authority to lay down my life, and I have the authority to pick it back up because the Father has given me this authority. You can't kill the author of life. The author of life simply rewrites life again. He stands up from the tomb. He rises from the grave, and he says, I am back. Even death cannot defeat me because I'm the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. God, his father, is the one who raised him as well. This is the God. If he's got that kind of authority over death, what do you think he could say to a pair of weak ankles? What do you think he could say to a pair of feet that can't stand up? The author of life can look at them and go, be new. And the ankles will be strong. He can do more than that. Since he authored this man, since he wrote this man, since he created this man, he can also put in his brain the firmware that he needs to make those ankles and legs operate correctly. He can strengthen legs that have never borne his weight so that they can now bear his weight, so that they can jump up and down, so they can run around, so that they can praise God. This is the God whom you crucified, is what he's telling them. This is the author. So he wants them to understand this miracle is not because we're so cool. This miracle is because the author of life has done something decisive in history. And now I think he's got their attention. I know he got my attention. As I was preparing this, I thought, oh my gosh, I did that to the Son of God. I threw my sin on him. I continue to add to it. Why would I add that burden to this man? And just like we saw in Pentecost, the answer that Peter gives them is not, you better flee for the hills. He doesn't tell them, you better go hide someplace. Instead, what he does is he tells them, run to this one. This one you rejected, this one you handed over, fly to him. He's the only one that can help. So he issues, in the end, a call to repentance. And he says, and now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your leaders. Ignorance is no grounds for a pardon. For them to look and go, well, I, sorry, Jesus, we didn't know. We thought you were just a Galilean who was causing trouble. That's not, that's not the grounds for a pardon. That's not how this works. He tells them right off the bat, I know you were ignorant. I know you didn't understand, but that's not sufficient. What ignorance is, is not a grounds for pardon. It is a chance for repentance. Because by ignorance, what we mean is not, they're just dumb kind of people. They don't understand complex things. That's how we use ignorant today. Oh, you're so ignorant. What ignorance really means at its root is, this is something you did not know or didn't properly understand. You were ignorant of this fact. And so let me unpack that for you. I know you were ignorant. I know you did not understand who Jesus Christ was. But that doesn't let you off the hook. And here, let me explain to you why it doesn't let you off the hook. He says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. The reason that your ignorance won't get you off the hook is because you had the prophets and you didn't listen to them. God said through his prophets that Jesus would suffer. God said through his prophets Jesus would die. God said through his prophets he would not let his Holy One see corruption, and so he would raise him again from the dead. I love that Job reading. 
Though my flesh decays, though my body rots, I will physically stand on this earth, and with these eyeballs, I will behold my Redeemer. He will stand on this earth with me. What faith? He's trusting in the resurrection. That's, that's exactly what's going on here is God had said that Jesus would die. God had said that he would rise, and he said it through the prophets, and you didn't get it. This is why your ignorance is not grounds for pardon. God's not going to go, well, I'm sorry you didn't understand. He'd spoken. He had spoken clearly. And he says, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sin may be blotted out. How are your sins forgiven? We talked about this previously. How are your sins forgiven? In this case, the word is repent. And it's mirrored in the phrase turn back because that's what repent means. Is you were ignorant of who Jesus Christ was. You did a horrible thing to him. Now it's time to turn and stop running from him. Turn instead and head towards him. Run to Jesus Christ in this. Repent that those sins, those horrible sins that you have committed in handing him over to Pilate might be forgiven. That those sins, those horrible sins you committed in looking at him and going, yeah, he's innocent, kill him anyway, might be forgiven. In order that those sins that were laid on his shoulders as he hung on the cross and suffered for you might be forgiven, turn and run to him, not from him. Don't hide. And now verse 20 it says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Christ appointed to you, Jesus. I hate to nerd out. I've got to do a little bit of a nerd out on this. If you've got an NIV, it doesn't say times of refreshing. That, that first part of that phrase is missing. And there's a couple other translations that follow that. That's called a textual variant. And what it means is in copies of the book of Luke, or the book of Acts, in some places, that phrase isn't there. In some places, it is. Now, normally, it's a pretty straightforward equation to figure out, is this, is it, should it be included or not? You generally, first of all, go with the older manuscript. So if you've got a manuscript from the 5th century and you're looking at a manuscript from the 7th century, you give priority to the 5th century because it was closer to the original. The other thing you do is you take the more difficult reading. So if, if something is missing or something is added, and it's kind of a tie, you go, well, which one makes it harder to understand? And that's what we're going to go with. Because the idea is maybe some scribe went, you know, I've written this about 40 times now, and I just, I'm going to leave that out because that, that just doesn't make sense to me. So that's the idea is that it might be evened out. Why do we have a, a problem with verse 20? Because it's kind of a tie in both equations. And so the question in this case, if I can get technical, it comes down to not which is the oldest manuscript, but which is the oldest set of manuscripts. And how do they fit together? So do you look at just this one fragment that somebody quoted that includes it? Or do you look at this bigger set of writings that included it or didn't include it, that kind of stuff? So that's the technical issue. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. So I just wasted your time. Because even if you leave that out, the second part is still true. But the first part, I think, fleshes it out. And my personal inclination is to say, yeah, it belongs there. That's why commentaries don't even mention it. They don't even deal with it because it probably should be there. It depends on which text you go with. But let's take a look at it. Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent, turn back, have your sins forgiven so that refreshing might come from the, the Lord. The, the word for um, refreshing, refreshment coming, it comes from the idea of blowing cool air on somebody. Um, now, beware, very beware much 
of root word fallacies where you say, well, this is, what it, this is what the root word is, so it must mean that. It can morph into something more. The, it, refreshing is probably the best way to, to, to talk about it. But it has this idea behind it, this cool air being blown on someone or you know, that kind of feeling. And, and you know, today I think it's going to be 100. We're going to get to the point where we've got mechanical cool air blowing on us pretty regularly. And that is refreshing, isn't it? So that's what's going on is this refreshment may come from the presence of the Lord. And if it has the idea of, of being blown on, of wind blowing on somebody, that could be talking again about the Holy Spirit. Because the word panuma is um, Greek for not only spirit, but also wind. And so it could be that same idea. It might be that, that um, Peter is, is doing a little bit of wordplay here to kind of get that point across, is that the Spirit might come from the presence of the Lord and blow upon you. It might grant you the repentance that you need. But the important part, at that he may send the Christ appointed for you, this Jesus. Is that a second chance for these folks? They've already rejected him. Do they get a second go? Is that fair? You already rejected him once. You turned him over. You got him crucified. And now what? You have a second chance that Jesus may come for you? You better believe it is. God loves to give second chances. He is offering them one more time. Please turn. Come to your Messiah, the, the, the one who was sent for you. Please come. And Peter begs them again and offers them again. This Jesus whom you rejected, please turn to him. You have the second chance. Now, at death, it's too late because the scriptures say man is appointed once to die and then judgment. But before then, the offer is made over and over again. And thank God it is because I know I heard it a bunch of times and went, yeah, I'm not interested. Before the one time I heard it, I went, oh my gosh, this is tremendous. So is this a second chance? Yes, it is. This Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. When Jesus returns, he's going to restore all things. That's that picture from Job. I'll stand on the earth with my Redeemer. My eyes will behold God. I will see him. He's coming to make all things right, and he's going to return and make it all right. So what Peter is offering them is he's, he's pointed out their sin, and he's also pointed that Jesus has risen again. And now he's saying, there comes a time, my friends, when it's too late. When Jesus returns and restores all things, you can't hop on board at that point. He's given you opportunity. He's given you a lot of opportunity. Now, we have no idea when he's going to return, but when he does, you want to be on his side. You want to have trusted in him at that point. Until then, heaven must receive him. Where else could he go? Why must heaven receive him? There's no place else worthy to contain him until that point. Death couldn't hold him. Death had to release him. And he came and he walked on the earth with his apostles, and then he ascended to the right hand of God in heaven. Heaven must receive this holy and righteous one until the appointed time. And the prophets knew this. The prophets are looking forward to Jesus' return. And, and now he gives us a little hint. Where do you get that from, Peter? Where, where are you going with this? Moses quotes Deuteronomy. Moses said, The Lord will rise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul that does not listen to, him, to that prophet shall be destroyed from his people. Moses himself said, I'm not going to be around forever. 
Joshua is a great guy. He's going to do a good job leading you in, but he's not it either. A prophet will rise up from among you, like me, only he's greater. If you read the book of Hebrews, you know Moses was just a servant in the house. Jesus is the Lord of the house. He's the heir to the whole house. So this Moses is pointing forward. He, Moses told them. He warned them. Be watching out for this prophet who's going to come after me. He's going to be like me, but he's going to be greater than me. Because if you don't listen to him, you will be cut off from your people. You will be excluded from your people if you don't obey this, this prophet. So Peter stands before them and he warns them, this prophet's coming back. Don't be cut off from his people. Come now. Repent now. Turn now. Find Jesus now. That's what he's arguing with them. That's what he's, he's begging them to do. And then he goes on. It wasn't just Moses. It wasn't just some obscure reference. All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him prophesied of his days. Samuel prophesied about Jesus' day. How did Samuel prophesy about Jesus' day? Because he appointed kings. He said, God, I'm really mad. These people are demanding a king. And God says, let them have it. Give them Saul. But Saul wasn't the king that God wanted. Then Samuel goes and he says, God tells him, go to the sons of Jesse. And from them will come your king. And so Samuel does what he's told. And he goes and he looks and the first son comes marching out and he goes, this must be it. Look at this guy. Strapping, good looking. He's probably good in a fight. Yeah, this has got to be him. And God says, no, that's not him. I've rejected him. And the next one comes out, hey, pretty good too. This must be the guy. Eventually God says, Samuel, stop looking at people's outsides. I look at the heart of a man. And then David comes. And David's the youngest, but he's handsome and he's, he's fit and that kind of stuff. So he's not like his outsides were horrible. But what was most important about David was his inside. And Jesus Christ is the son of David, the greater son of David. We saw that in the Pentecost sermon. So Samuel prophesied by being Samuel, by appointing kings, by announcing that David would be the, the future king of Israel. It's the same thing here. How long did it take David to get to the throne? By my calculations, it was around 14 years that, Samuel, or that uh, David was on the run from Saul for about 14 years. So Jesus is this greater son of David. He will ascend to the throne. When he returns, he will set all things right. How long is that going to be? I don't know. It'll be a while, but he's reigning now. He's a king now. He's been anointed king now. He's waiting to come and take his throne. It's a similar thing. That's what Samuel did. And all those who came after him proclaimed this. You remember Peter says the prophets who wrote about him were, were kind of trying to look in and say, well, when is this happening? When does this come? What is the day of the, of the Christ appearing? Even those prophets, as they prophesied it, they wanted to know more. They wanted to understand it. They all spoke about him. They were all looking forward to him. And he says to them, here's the promise that they have. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. You. He's looking at the Jews at this point. Now, at this point, we could, we could get a little twitchy because, well, what about the Gentiles? We're not to the Gentiles yet. Remember what Jesus told his disciples? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. They're still witnessing in Jerusalem. So the message they preach to the Jews in Jerusalem is going to be a little different than when it gets to the Gentiles. But it's not that much different. It's rooted in the same thing. So he looks to them and he says, you're the sons of the prophets and the covenant is meant for you 
It was established to Abraham. It was offered to you. It was passed on through Isaac and Jacob. It came to you. You are the sons of the covenant. And, and, and here's where the Gentiles now get looped in. Saying to Abraham, and to your offspring, or in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So I don't think Peter understood the full import of this. What he's looking at is he's saying, God created a covenant with you. He's going to bring blessing. He brought the Christ to you. You rejected him, but he's going to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. He won't understand this probably until chapter 10 when he meets Cornelius and goes, wait a minute, the Holy Spirit fell on him. How did that happen? He's not even circumcised. Then I think that's when Peter goes, oh, I get it. When he said to the ends of the earth, he meant to the ends of the earth. When he said that he'd be a blessing to all the nations, he meant he'd be a blessing to all the nations. Now I see. May I have the same theological clarity someday soon <laughs> to be able to read God's word and say, that's what it says, that's what it means. That's a blessing from God that he would get that. He quotes Genesis, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This Jesus Christ is not just for you. He's for you, he's for your children, he's for those who are far off. It's the same thing that he said uh, last week. And then God raised up his servant and sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. I told you it was personal. He looks him in the face and he says, you're wicked. You have got to turn away from your wickedness. And to do that, God has made a way from you. He's made a way for you to turn away from your wickedness. This Jesus Christ, this author of life who you murdered, he's risen again. And in him you will find forgiveness so that when he returns and restores all things, you'll be part of that. Turn now from your wickedness. Repent from your wickedness. Turn now to Christ. So that's Peter's, Peter's message is, is this goes first to the Jews. Um, what does that mean first to the Jews? Does that mean that now when we go to witness someplace, we should find a Jew and witness to them first? Did we, we got to Myanmar, did we go hunt down the only Jew in Myanmar and say, look, here's Jesus Christ? No, you're not interested? Cool. That, what it means is exactly what Jesus said, which is you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. I'm going to start with the Jews. And then Samaria, which is almost Jewish, but not really. And then the ends of the earth, which are very not. That's how this works. So now he comes to them and he says, I'm starting with you, brothers. You're children of the covenant. You're children of the prophets. You have the scriptures entrusted to you. So let me bring the gospel to you first. Will you hear and believe and turn from your wickedness? So in Romans, Paul does a similar thing. Paul was the, Gentile to, or the apostle to the Gentiles, but he does a similar thing. Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he, the power of the gospel is offered to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But that's not all he says about that. Read ch uh, chapter 2, verse 9. He goes on, he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So the Jews don't get a free pass on this. There will be tribulation. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So the Jews being first does not negate the fact that God shows no partiality. So we're in we're Jerusalem. We're in Jerusalem. In a few chapters, we'll be heading out into Judea. We'll hit Samaria. And then the rest of the book will all be the ends of the earth. 
This is the spread of the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's why the Jews get a second chance. But so do the Greeks. It was the Roman Empire. It was their arm of, uh, of government. It was their arm of the military that actually performed the execution of Jesus Christ. And who does Paul go to? He, he, he winds up in Felix's court and says, Felix, I am so glad I get to testify before you. Herod, I'm glad you're here. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And then when things don't go right, he says, I appeal to Caesar. He's going not through the arms of the Roman Empire. He's going to the head of the Roman Empire. He wants to go talk to Caesar. So that's what's going on here is to the Jew first, because the Jews rejected him, but also to the Gentile. He's going to the source of those who rejected him. He's heading towards, um, towards uh, Caesar. Now, what comes in the next chapter is we get a very different result than we did at Pentecost. At Pentecost, Peter preached. He looked him right in the eye and said, you crucified him. You killed the, uh, the Son of God. And 3,000 people said, we want out of this. What do we do? Turn and repent. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and join us. And they did. 3,000 did. This coming week, it's a little different of a turnout. As they're preaching in the temple, they come and get arrested. And we watch what happens as they get a different response to the gospel. So don't forget that. Don't, I don't want to preach next week's sermon. Actually, I'm going to touch it. So um, there are different responses to the gospel. There, there are different ways people respond to these things. Lisa met a woman this past week and shared pretty much this story with her. And the lady's response was, I feel indifferent about that. So there can be people who turn and want to know more. There can be people who go, no, nah, I don't want anything to do with it. Not interested. Um, what we're called to do, what you and I are called to do, is to faithfully present that message over and over again, to tell people over and over again, this is what Jesus Christ has done for you. Why? Because his sheep hear his voice, and they come out and they follow him. So Pentecost, it was 3,000 sheep. Um, this event, whenever this took place, is looking like zero sheep at this point. Um, but this is what the gospel does. The gospel calls and the gospel hardens. So when we're at ABC and we're praying, we're praying, Lord, would you soften some hearts? Would you call some sheep and lead them to yourself? Let's pray. Lord, would you please give us confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we would have no hope in our own goodness, but Lord, that we would look to the righteousness that Jesus performed on our behalf, that he took the sins of the world upon his shoulders, he died and buried them, paid the, paid the debt in full, marked it paid, and then rose again. And so Lord, would you draw many people into that tremendously good news that though we have added it to his burden through our sins, Lord, that we're saved. And I pray that you would draw many people to run to Jesus instead of fleeing from him, especially on that day when he returns. May there be many faces that look up with an air of expectancy and say, finally. And Lord, we pray that you would use us to draw many, many more to you in that fashion. Lord, have mercy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.